This episode is brought to you by Yotta Energy. That's Y-O-T-T-A Energy. We all know energy storage is key to deploying renewables at scale. I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings over my years in climate tech, but not as impressive as Yotta's. Yotta Energy's PV-coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions simply integrates within the standard solar installation process. Even better, their integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be deployed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means Yotta is making a serious dent in CO2 emissions. With the electrification of everything revolution underway, Yotta Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by sizing solar plus storage resources to recharge electric vehicles as they future-proof buildings into distributed energy sites powering the grid of the future. Find out more at YottaEnergy.com and follow Yotta on Twitter at Yotta Energy. This episode is also brought to you by Ether Diamonds. That's A-E-T-H-E-R Diamonds. If you're planning to propose or purchase a timeless gift for your partner, I couldn't think of a better purchase than Ether Diamonds. Ether Diamonds are the world's most sustainable diamonds and the only diamonds that are actually good for the planet. Ether creates the world's first positive impact diamonds made from captured CO2. In fact, every carat of Ether Diamonds offsets your personal carbon footprint for over a year. These are 100% real diamonds with a real impact. They're some of the highest quality diamonds you can buy and are certified by IGI, the world's largest independent laboratory for testing and grading gemstones and fine jewelry. Now you're no longer stuck having to choose between mined and regular lab-grown diamonds, both of which harm the environment. Ether offers the only truly sustainable diamonds on the market, requiring no ethical or environmental trade-offs. In other words, They're the only guilt-free diamonds available in the world. To learn more about these revolutionary diamonds from air, visit their website at etherdiamonds.com and follow on Twitter at etherdiamonds. Hello, my fellow climate warriors. This is Matt Myers, and welcome to a special edition of Climate Tech Cocktails. This is the first of four episodes we recorded live with Climate Tech founders at Techonomy's 2022 Climate Conference. Yes, we still drank together when we could and had plenty of laughs. My guest today is Maddie Hall, co-founder and CEO of Living Carbon. You can find Maddie at Maddie Halla and Living Carbon on Twitter at Living underscore Carbon. Living Carbon's mission is to responsibly rebalance the planet's carbon cycle using the inherent power of plants. Living Carbon is growing genetically modified poplars and pines, capable of absorbing much more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than regular trees. Also, they grow faster and produce more durable wood than their natural counterparts. Prior to Living Carbon, Maddie worked on special projects at OpenAI, and held various roles in venture capital and product management. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Maddie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Happy to be here. Yeah. So what are we drinking today? Well, given the fact that it's 1130 in the morning, I'm drinking a black tea. (laughs) You're drinking a black tea and I am doing a Kahlua and coffee because somebody here has to drink. Your own take on an espresso martini. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. And this is live from Techonomy, the first in-person podcast session I've done at a conference. So welcome. Very honored to be the first in-person podcast at the conference. It's quite a title I get to have. (laughs) So I have a very serious question to kick things off. This is really serious. 
What is your favorite tree? My favorite tree. Oh my gosh. That is such a hard question. <laughs> I have like different types of trees that I find to be better in dirt, different environments. I would say the there's um so do you know the story of the American chestnut? No, I don't. And may I regale you briefly? Yes, please. So American chestnut trees were huge trees. They get to be like 90 feet tall all over the northeastern United States. There was a terrible blight actually, Uh-oh. that resulted in pretty much all of them dying. And now they're relatively close to extinct or they don't live past their juvenilia, which is after basically year 13, this blight wipes them out. You know, the whole chestnuts roasting on an open fire sort of situation. We don't really roast chestnuts anymore because we don't have any American chestnuts anymore. And so I'll get, this is a long-winded story to get to my favorite tree, but I will say uh, the American chestnut was a project that was being worked on by some biologists up in Cornell and SUNY New York. And they developed a blight resistant American chestnut tree that will actually allow us to increase our biodiversity and hopefully get some chestnuts at some point in time. So there's there's one American chestnut in the United States in Massachusetts that is on its own island. And so the blight never got there. So it's still very tall. And it's one of the last remaining American chestnuts that hasn't been killed by this blight. And so I'd say that my favorite trees are one, that tree, and two, the trees that are going to be blight resistant to the the blights that's destroyed many American chestnuts. So not my own, um, (laughs) but I do think a perfect example of how biotechnology can be used for good and to help restore our ecosystems. I love how you wove that in because while I was doing research from the articles you sent me, I saw that there is a chestnut tree engineer to resist a devastating imported blight that has been underway for more than two years, but there's no timetable for completion. But I'm, that, that's going to go into the regula- regulation part of this conversation, which is the least exciting part of it, which mm-hmm. will be the the end. But I, I also do appreciate chestnuts. I would say that my favorite tree is the redwood tree, mm-hmm. especially old growth redwood trees. So they're beautiful and relatively resistant to fire, actually. So they are. They are. I mean, they're like our ancestors, essentially. Mm-hmm. Would you classify yourself as a tree hugger? A hundred percent. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I love trees. I love hugging trees. Actually, I look I uh, not for this. I went on a tangent and I researched the history of tree huggers, which I recommend everybody go and do. I have not done that, actually. Any takeaways that you found? So. Don't quote me on this, but I think that the original tree huggers were Indian women, uh, so women in India, and they were protesting logging, of course. That's where tree hugging comes from. And so they were like the original tree huggers. And then, of course, then the hippies took it up and they were doing the same thing where it was like, you know, folks are trying to log, they would literally form a ring around, I think in this case it was probably redwood trees and they would all hold hands and, and in other words, hug the tree. So those are, those, those are like the, the OG tree huggers. Yeah. And so what made you fall in love with trees and or plants? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up in Seattle, Washington, just around a lot of Douglas fir all the time. 
both my grandmothers are very well educated within the plant space. So I would tour my grandmother's garden and she'd be able to name every single plant. And my mom could too. And I always thought that that was a really dope skill to have. And, you know, I never really worked on actually learning from both of them, which I think was a a mistake on my part. But that just created this sense of appreciation for the different types of types of species that inhabit our world that aren't humans, which honestly have some pretty crazy different traits and behaviors that I think gives you a better understanding of just the breadth and the the duration of evolution that our planet has gone through over time. These, you know, specific types of ferns have been around really forever. And our little portion of human history is small compared to the, the what all of the plant life on our planet has seen. And so you would say that you love plants. Yes, I definitely love plants. <laughs> cool. And so does that what inspired you to make a transition from let's just call it traditional tech to quote unquote climate tech? So I think my love for plants was sort of one of the reasons as to why I thought, okay, this idea of living carbon is something that I could could stay passionate about for 10 plus years, but it wasn't really the driving force per se. I would say the driving force was a couple of things. One, realizing like how many amazingly talented PhDs could be working on carbon removal, Mm -hmm. but in a lot of cases, didn't really have the resources to scale up their work. And also there's a need to create a unified vision around the role that biotechnology specifically can play in carbon removal. Where did you discover that or realize that? Like kind of like the need for PhDs to hook up, if you will, with a, let's say, more business-minded person. I'm sorry, PhDs out there. I'm not saying that you're not business-minded. Some of you do a great job of it, but let's just be honest. They're not necessarily like the business-first-minded people. So in a shorter way of asking, like, how did you make that discovery? Totally. So I had the privilege to help review uh, Y Combinator's request for carbon removal startups back yeah. in 2018, which outlined some very bold and ambitious solutions to removing a gigaton of carbon. And as I reviewed that, I just I couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And became very interested in exploring the different types of ambitious companies that could be started around carbon removal and climate technology. And so I did a deep dive into what was in this space. And when I when I discovered some research around plant biotechnology, I thought, geez, we've spent decades working on optimizing food and yeah. plants for our own consumption, right? Which is actually, if you think about it, the opposite of sequestration, right? Like when humans consume food and, you know, we're going through respiration and getting energy from our food, yeah. that's actually the opposite of, of photosynthesis. And so I thought, well, geez, the, a lot of these incredibly talented plant biologists, their job options are, you know, you go into academia or you work at a company like DuPont or Pioneer, a very large company that's doing plant biology, but also doing, you know, work in chemicals and materials and everything else. And so could you create an organization that would attract the type of plant biologists that went to work in plant biology because they too loved plants? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the hypotheses with living carbon that has definitely come to be true. The caliber of talent we've been able to recruit and the excitement of our team, I think is really one of the things that drives me and keeps me excited about the work that we do. Right. So you saw this white space, if you will, with a lot of innovation going on in climate 
a lot of a lot of brains around biotechnology applied to agriculture, but nobody doing it specifically with trees. Is that about right? Yeah, with trees and with an eye for carbon removal. Right. Right. You know, the work that the first couple of products that Living Carbon is working on and developing, those are trees, but that's just the beginning of the type of work that we're doing. I think ideally you want some sort of self-replicating um, organism that's able to photosynthesize and use yeah. energy from the sun to capture carbon at scale, but then store it in a more permanent way. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the role that biotechnology can play is helping in the development of those microbes or those plant systems. Yeah. So I lived in China in a past life. And as you know, they everybody knows they have a huge pollution problem. And I, I remember like I would be riding on a high-speed rail and I'd see these swaths of trees that looked exactly the same. And at the time they were already doing mass tree planting campaigns, right? So I, I, I'm guessing what you're trying to do is, is approach or disrupt like what China's doing now, what other countries are doing on a, on a mass scale in terms of, of planting trees to remove carbon. Yeah. So, you know, I think we have a lot of great local partners in different communities in the U.S. that work with us to do our planting projects, right? So I would say that Living Carbon wants to be able to, to tell the story of, for this specific tree, how much carbon is it actually removing mm -hmm. relative to what a non-enhanced tree would be removing or what you might see in a similar land type, right? Because that's that additionality component, right? If, if our trees, without carbon markets, our trees would not be able to exist, really. The supply of our seedlings would not be able to exist either. So when it comes to like the altruistic tree planting movements, I think that those are great. But now that that all of these companies are committing to science-based targets and net zero, there's a focus to utilize those efforts in a way that also is trackable and measurable mm -hmm. and can be counted towards your emissions goals. Got it. Well, let's take two steps backwards. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. And I'm curious, how did you meet or maybe find your co-founder? What Was it like, hey, you decided that you wanted to focus on this vertical or this application? of biotechnology and then found the co-founder or you met this person? Like, how did that happen? So, you know, for a while, I was just following PhDs around the East Coast to different conferences and trying to talk and get to know as many people in this space as I possibly could and learn, right? Like, yeah. I don't have a plant biology background. So I really focused on being able to read a paper in a way that was thoughtful and then being able to ask good questions, right? I met Patrick at a climate workshop, a climate conference we were at, and he was giving a talk on storing biomass in trees for a longer period of time mm -hmm. through some of the metals research. And I was focusing on giving a quick presentation about how photosynthesis enhancement could be applied within trees potentially. And those are like kind of two different sides of the same funnel. And we got along really well and started kind of collaborating a bit together. And then eventually we started working together that January. We then, you know, from the network with YC and some folks that I was introduced to, we then found our chief science officer, Yu Min, who had spent about 20 years at DuPont Pioneer and is really one of the, the pioneers himself of a lot of the work that was done within the agricultural space. Oddly, had had a similar idea on his own and decided to work with us as well. Awesome. And to get to the 
science of things a little bit and how this works, because we're already dancing around it, like what it is you all do. But I want to ask a question just of something that you stated. It's out of curiosity. And this comes from a place of ignorance. What does, what do metals have to do with biomass of plants or trees? That's a great question. So, you know, you see like a deck area or any sort of timber that's used outside. There's a good chance, like in railways, there's a good chance that that wood is actually pressure treated. So it's treated with a combination of different metals, copper and Uh and other metals that allows it to be more durable, to resist the decay. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons, nonetheless, as to why the CO2 from trees goes back into the atmosphere is because different types of fungi are able to break down the wood, right? Break down the lignin in the wood products. And so thinking about it from that perspective, what could we do to slow the rate in which different types of fungus are breaking down wood? And one way that we do that right now from a human building materials perspective is these sort of like metal-based treatments. But we also have a lot of excess metals in our soil. Mm -hmm. And so could we not only clean our soils, but also deposit those metals into the stem of the tree and then end up with a more durable wood product, but also a tree that will store carbon for longer. And to be clear, this is research that's ongoing. We haven't necessarily published any data on this yet. Interesting. So are trees naturally absorbing metals? Um, Some specific trees do. Actually, there are trees in New Caledonia that grow on ultramorphic or nickel-rich soil. And those actually can have up to 24% nickel sap concentration. So much metal that their sap is green. It's wild. For folks that are curious about this, Google uh, Picnandra acuminata. Um, That's the specific variety that uh, I'm referring to here. Cool. So, But what happens to the metals after the tree dies and the wood decomposes? Like, are these metals just going back into the soil? You'd hope that those trees would be harvested and used for other purposes. Mm. So building materials, things Mm -hmm. that are actually useful. But I guess, you know, in the case that they were to stay on the planted land, then yes, you'd end up with the same metal concentration that you had before. But our hope would be to actually purpose, use the wood for for useful purposes. Got it. And so you're, are you, when you're quote unquote, designing trees. And then let's, from this answer, this question, segue into what it is y'all are doing. But when you all are, is it safe to say designing trees? Maybe not. But if you're, if, when you're designing trees, are, are, are you, are you say, creating them in a way or designing them in a way so that they can absorb more metals and therefore you can potentially plant more trees on areas of land that have higher metal content. So not only are they drawing down carbon, but they're also sucking up metals as well. Exactly. So one of the traits that we're working on is adding genes and incorporating genes into our trees that allow them to be more tolerant to metal rich soils and accumulate those metals as well. Mm -hmm. So I know language is really important here. So I want to provide you with the opportunity, of course, to describe what it is living carbon is doing. Yeah. So I think to your point about language being important, there are a hundred of ways in which I can explain living carbon, depending on who I'm talking to. Right. So with living carbon, we use advanced biotechnology to develop trees that capture and store more carbon. And what that actually means is we incorporate genes from other plants, genes that are naturally occurring in plants like 
pumpkin, algae, mustard seed, a specific type of chocolate tree. And those are just a couple of plants that our source material, our source genes come from and incorporating them into the genome of commonly planted trees like hybrid poplar and loblolly pine. And in doing that, we're able to enhance the natural processes like photosynthesis in a shorter timeline than it would take from an evolutionary perspective, right? So instead of waiting for millennia for our trees to, or our plant life to evolve, to be more resilient to our ecosystems, the work that Living Carbon does is actually allowing for commonly planted trees by humans to be performing similar to the top 15% of plants. And when it comes to photosynthetic efficiency, which are a type of plants called C4 plants, right? Or C4 carbon fixation, very specific types of plants that have developed a more efficient form of photosynthesis. Mm. So what is the difference between C3 and C4? And can you give, you know, say a layman's or layperson's uh, description of that and uh, also maybe give some examples of what some of the C3 and C4 plants. Of course. So C4 plants, certain parts of photosynthesis are isolated from each other. And the result of that is a decrease of waste, right? So you're isolating different stages within photosynthesis and you're doing it in tissue specific areas, right? Some types of C4 plants or types of cactuses. Those are also cam plants, which is a little bit different, but generally C4 plants would be plants that have and maybe evolved in slightly more extreme climates. And basically okay. certain parts of the plant and certain areas within the plant cell are going to be responsible for certain parts of photosynthesis. And because of that more structural separation, you don't have as many waste products being utilized in processes like photorespiration. For C3 plants, right, there are cases where instead of the plant capturing and binding to CO2, that plant will actually bind to oxygen through a process called photorespiration. And so that happens in certain environments, or it's more likely to happen in, in certain environments or certain conditions, but it does result in a decreased efficiency of photosynthesis overall and therefore a slower growth rate. Yeah. In those plants. The, the photorespiration does, which is the binding to oxygen yeah. instead of carbon. Yes, exactly. Okay. Can you just describe a bit more what photorespiration is? Because I, I, it's, it's from the reading that I did, it seems a bit m more complicated than that. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, it's the process by which plants bind to oxygen instead of CO2. And in doing so, they actually produce CO2. And it's a much less efficient mm. way for them to get sugars. And there's a lot of toxic byproducts that are a result of photorespiration that the plants then have to break down. So it's more energy intensive for plant cells to go through photorespiration. There's some literature indicating that it does serve a purpose. So for living carbon, we didn't want to get rid of it at all, but just make it easier for the plant to break down those waste byproducts. So we do that by, instead of having the toxic byproducts of photorespiration, broken down across multiple organelles, right? So ribosomes, mitochondria, this whole recycling process is very complex to do all of that within the chloroplast itself. And that allows for decreased energy going towards processing these waste products, more energy going towards growth and improved photosynthesis. Got it. So you are, in a nutshell, 
a chestnut shell, <laughs> using genetics to take parts of plants that um, would help a tree increase its photosynthesis or improve its rate of photosynthesis and therefore its ability to draw down carbon and you are then producing seedlings with those genetics and therefore uh let's say uh what's the language that you would use for for this new tree that you're forming i mean we simply call them photosynthesis enhanced trees right because that's what that's what they are and oh one interesting thing to flag here is that not only do we see changes in photosynthetic efficiency uh, from a biochemical perspective but also growth rate and the amount of biomass that a tree can can accumulate over time which is really important because about half of the tree's biomass is actually carbon Right. So you're measuring when we're examining our trees in the field, we're measuring many different variables, right? On a molecular level, on a physiological level, on a morphological level, you're measuring how these plants are performing and by taking a, so many measurements. It's a lot of data. Um, but yeah. Right. Are, are we able to increase, let's say, the fire resistance to fire or fire resistance of a tree? Yeah, so that's some, that's something that we've actually looked at a little bit. One of the interesting things there is bark thickness. Uh-huh. So generally thicker barked trees are more resistant to fire. So that's something that we've explored a little bit. It would be much further on our roadmap. One important thing to think about is like these are living systems, right? Mm-hmm. And so the energy that you have to- going towards producing thicker bark right? That energy has to come from from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, traits like that will also result in growth rate changes, or the plant might be slower growing because it's focusing more on producing thicker bark. And so that's where the photosynthesis enhancement is really important, because the hope is that that trait can allow us to then still be able to accommodate um, within the genome of our plants these other sort of traits like fire resistance, mm-hmm. because you have that growth rate benefit, and that's helpful when you're designing other trees like that. Okay. Uh, let's give people a few stats here. Why would I plant or a living carbon tree versus just a non-living carbon tree when we're doing reforestation? Totally. So I think one, it really depends on the land that you're planting your tree on. <laughs> I I don't know if that's a statistic per se, but in a paper that we released recently, we did see, and this was in our greenhouse trials and our in our indoor trials, an up to 53% increase in the biomass of the plant, right? So that's how much tree you get over a period of time. And that will roughly equate to about 30% more carbon. But really, when you're planting a living carbon tree, you're supporting research into this area. Also, you know, you're going to be a data point um, that we'll be using to help understand how our trees are performing within these ecosystems. And you're supporting the development of basically using biology to more permanently sequester carbon. Mm-hmm. So solving that problem of durability and scale, scale which exists for engineered solutions, durability which exists for nature-based solutions. And so when people plant living carbon trees, they're directly investing in the work that we're doing at Living Carbon and helping support not only our ability to continue to do this research, but also the data that we want to collect on on our plants. Mm-hmm. And you reference at the beginning of this conversation that you all might do different plants 
in addition to trees? What might that look like? Yeah, so we see ourselves as um, a biotechnology engine, per se, where you're working both on helping solve different problems, different problems using a specific set of traits in a specific set of plants, right? So you can mix and match there a little bit. Of course, it's not super simple, right? Like just because something works in poplar, you're still going to have to make some changes to make it work in pine. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, 85% of plants are C3 plants. So our hope is to work on anything from microbes to types of switchgrass, both focused on the durability and also on the growth rate. And in a lot of those cases, we're not best equipped to take it all the way to production scale. So working in conjunction with production partners there too. Got it. And I I know this was asked of you when you just spoke. And I know that there are probably some tree huggers listening. We don't have to spend much time on it because I actually don't think it's that big of an issue. But what are how do you address some of the concerns that folks are expressing when you're, let's say, genetically modifying a tree and then putting it out in the wild? You know, what might that do to the ecosystem and and positive ne- negative externalities from that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to look at what you're genetically engineering something to do and how, uh-huh. right? The work that we do at Living Carbon, and and also it's like a, a very fuzzy line in terms of what you consider genetic engineering. Yeah. Right? Like after World War II, uh, different scientists within the U.S. government exposed corn and wheat to radiation to induce mutations, right? Interesting. And those mutations, that's what evolution benefits from, right? Mm-hmm. It's these mutations that allow us to select this specific variety of this organism to continue down the road, right? Now, what we do with genetic engineering is actually just be more nuanced and intentional about these mutations, as opposed to just sort of waiting for them to appear in nature. And that gives us a bit more nuanced control and understanding of what's actually happening. So I think for us, photosynthesis and enhancement and improved photosynthetic efficiency, something that happens already. Yeah. Right. So when people ask me about unintended consequences, I think that's a that's a big part of my answer. Um, And the other is just like if you have a nebulous fear about new technology, that's fine. I think it's easier for me to respond to specific concerns that people Mm -hmm. bring up. I think I have a much greater nebulous fear around what will happen if these technologies are not deployed with intention and to if we don't research and start to deploy these technologies at all to our food supply, to our climate, to our forests. That to me is super scary and something that I think is important to research early on. Absolutely. What I'm most curious about is how you all think about biodiversity. That's a very good question. So I think that as with the case for the American chestnut, biotechnology can be a story of how we can actually use the skills that we've developed as humans to increase biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And so for us, what that looks like is helping plant fast-growing trees in areas where invasive species might already have taken over, Mm. right? And other sorts of trees can't really compete. Or planting trees on land where there isn't much vegetation at all Mm -hmm. because it's been clear-cut and not reforested or it's underperforming land. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the plantings that we do do incorporate whatever the landowner wants. And so we're definitely not advocating for a large scale monoculture in any way. I think it's important to realize that for forests to stay forests, they have to make money. Right. Otherwise, developers will buy them out. 
So you have to partner with these landowners to plant the trees that mills will want to harvest and give them money for. Otherwise, eventually, you know, that land is not going to exist anymore. Yeah. Interesting to think about. And that brings me to a topic of conversation, which has been at the top of my mind, is I went to World Economic Forum, the last one they had. And this was where Mark Benioff actually uh, convinced Trump to sign the U.S. onto the Trillion Trees Pledge. Mm-hmm. And I think the timing of that is might have been interesting for y'all, right? That's like maybe a year or two into your research and your business. And I'm curious about how that has impacted the way that you're thinking as a business. And also, I want to, I'd like it if you could provide listeners with the idea of the scale of what's happening in terms of planting trees in order to draw down carbon and combat climate change. Yeah, totally. So I think that it's really important that folks reach across the party lines and you can come up with solutions to climate change that are not only good for the planet, but also good for business. Because frankly, you're not going to get large scale adoption if that's not the case. So for us, it's generating revenue for landowners on an annual basis, as opposed to them having to wait until they harvest their timber. When it comes to the scale that we work on, right, we're hoping to do about 1.1 to 1.4 million trees planted next year, which will be great by the end of the year. When you talk, when you take a step back and you think about the Trillion Tree Initiative, right, um, the biggest bottleneck is one, seedling supply, and Mm -hmm. two, land use efficiency. Right. So while the world may have additional carrying capacity for trillions of trees, a lot of it is owned privately. Private landowners in the U.S. are actually a larger percentage of total forest land than state or federal government. Mm. So in that regard, you have to create incentives that align everybody correctly. And, you know, I'm not sure if this is this is answering your, your question, but for me, Doing that in a way that allows for what I would consider to be like true additionality relative to other trees that might be planted mm-hmm. um, is really, really important. Mm. And I guess one other issue might be labor with pl- how do you plant a trillion trees? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's why when looking at that, I took a step back and I was like, well, what if you could make the trees grow faster and be more efficient? at photosynthesis because the benefit of nature-based solutions is that they can be deployed quickly and be deployed now. But it's actually still kind of challenging to do at scale. For us, we partner with folks that have been planting millions of trees for years, right? Mm -hmm. One of our largest suppliers, they produce about 300 million trees every year. Wow! And so when thinking about the additional 1.4 million for living carbon, that's pretty understandable yeah. for them, right? They're they're okay with adding that additional amount. Our scientists like love our team to death. Scaling up or tree planting is really not in our wheelhouse. So, and that's also an area where you can provide a lot more economic opportunity and jobs for for folks within some of these like areas that used to be former coal mines, etc. Mm-hmm. How can we speed this up? I can imagine that a big obstacle right now is regulation. But what else? Well, what what could be done in that regard, and and what other obstacles might there be in order for us to, you know, to speed it up? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a need for all climate tech companies for the like offices in the government that you work with to be clarified, right? Mm-hmm. 
I think the Department of Energy has done a truly outstanding job of deploying capital through like ARPA-E and, and other programs um, to some of these solutions. And I also think that in many cases, folks that are working on carbon removal are not regulated as carbon removal, right? They're regulated as doing an injection in a geothermal mm-hmm. well or right. um, introducing a genetically engineered or gene edited plant, mm-hmm. right? Or doing something for carbon removal that might have traditionally been done for food production. Mm-hmm. And to be regulated in a way that doesn't actually fit with the end use of what you're doing creates confusion. Right. right? Um, and it creates challenges. So for us, I think we've been really fortunate. We've got a great relationship with the USDA and the Department of Energy both have been very helpful for us as we brought our our seedlings to market. Mm. So the government also needs to be buying carbon credits at at a certain point. Once we get the markets to a place where it seems like in a good spot, but man, talk about procurement and helping support industries. Like a lot of it is early purchases. It's early purchases showing that, hey, let's be open-minded and let's support early tons that are going to be captured by this company. Right. So just like the U.S. federal government is using procurement to speed the adoption of electric vehicles, they could use procurement to speed the adoption of planting more photosynthetic efficient trees. Uh, yeah, totally. Or just carbon credits in general, carbon, right? Yeah. Like living carbon's work is is one of the many different startups that are mm-hmm. working on this in this space. And to really get through that growth phase, right, beyond just the early stages, I think that's a role where the federal government can play a large, large role, I guess. The other two things that I would wish for on my like government wish list, yeah. of course, I have to add it because everybody does, like a federal price on carbon um, and having the carbon markets centralized. Carbon markets that are focused more on the new different products that are being used as mm-hmm. opposed to adopting different practices, mm-hmm. right? So like, oh, I get this amount of additional carbon because I did no-till farming, yeah. right? Well, what about the microbes that are being used to actually increase the growth rate of your plants or sequester yeah. more carbon in the soil? The tricky part is you have to hold that in conjunction with the need for this to be truly a marketplace. Right now, tons of CO2 are not equivalent at all. And having to have that quality-based pricing and some sort of overarching framework in which all of these different carbon removal companies can operate. Let's talk about carbon markets just for one minute because... We had Rafa from Toucan Protocol on, and I've delved into the, let's say, uh, crypto application to climate and what's taking place with the carbon markets. I'm curious what your two cents are on that and what it, might it ultimately help your company? I mean, I don't have two cents on this. I probably have about five cents on this, but I'll give you the bridge version. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, um, let's, let's, get, let's get like three and a half, you know, me halfway in the middle. A, a good deal. So, you know, here's the thing. Right now within the carbon markets, within climate tech in general, there's a huge mismatch between supply and demand. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of demand for carbon credits yeah. because all these companies have committed to net zero, but the supply is not there. It's just not. And... I think some, some one of the things that I don't like about some of the Web3 applications mm-hmm. is the fact that in a lot of cases, they're driving up the price of cheap credits that are not that great to begin with. And they're not passing any of the uh, additional revenue or opportunity back to the project suppliers, mm-hmm. right? Back to the folks that are actually doing the hard, hard work of removing carbon from the air. I'll say the good thing about them 
is the additional liquidity for folks. So that even increases the demand within the carbon market space and being able to trade carbon credits in a way that isn't just sort of retiring them. So, mm. you know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing an application that feels like it really resonates within the existing mm hard scientific ecosystem that is carbon removal. Mm-hmm. And I've yet to see one that I think does that mm-hmm. in a way that I'm really excited about. It's almost like they should apply the an NFT to it in a way so that it's almost like I, I'm not as into NFTs a lot of people, but NFTs in, in essence, it's like if a if a musician produces a song and then they sell that as an NFT the musician will continue to earn royalties on that, if you will, every time the NFT is exchanged. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like in this case, if Living Carbon earned a tiny royalty every time that the NFT was transacted. So maybe that's a way that that, that could support companies such as Living Carbon. Yeah, I mean, you know, I that's that's an intriguing idea. I think you're not the first person to mention NFTs or people have suggested to me NFTs, um, <laughs> which uh, no comment on that. Um, but the work that we do is really grounded in like actual planting projects. Yeah. You know, I've got a, part of our team right now is out in rural Georgia talking to landowners. And and that is, I think, the most important work that can be done. Yeah. And if there's a way to connect that to the broader Web3 ecosystem yeah. and community that feels like it resonates in line with like the principles that we have around carbon removal, then then great. I think I can't really comment on NFTs because like I'm just someone who <laughs> plants trees. I don't know enough about the space. Out of um, trees. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's pretty terrible, huh? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I think there is a there there. And I'll share this with a few folks because I, I, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of will on that side of the coin. So uh, perhaps there's a way. So I, I want to bring it to the last questions that I ask every guest on the show. What are three books that have impacted the way that you think and approach life? Oh, that's a that's such a good question. I really I really like reading. I'll give you three. I'm tempted to do like all three being climate related, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. The first one is a book called The Midnight Library, and it's a really fantastic book about just all of the different possible versions of your life that you could lead. And the premise is, and without giving too much away, you know, in between life and death, there's this place called the Midnight Library, and you're able to see copies of what your life could have been like had you made a different choice earlier on. Yeah, And it's a really good reminder to me of, you know, the fact that there are all these decisions that seem very small that we make that actually have a much bigger impact on who we become as people and the trajectory of our life. And to me, it exemplifies the fact that there are so many decisions that we've yet to make and to be intentional about our choices, but also recognize that we don't have that much control at the end of the day. Have you, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but I'm curious, Have uh, on that note, have you, did you ever like growing up have those books where you would choose your adventure? It's like, you know, choose A or B and then you keep choosing. And yes, yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, I haven't thought about those books in a long time, but yeah, I definitely had some. I would like go back and find every yeah. iteration of the mystery. Or whatnot. <laughs> I guess there's a Black Mirror episode that does that too, but this book is more uplifting than that. And then the second one I'm reading right now is The Order of Time. And that's a really beautiful depiction of some of the fundamental things, uh, like concepts within physics that I don't think 
people who are not physicists think about all the time. Like the idea that time on top of a mountain passes in a different speed than time at the ocean, Mm -hmm. right? And all of these different ways that we sort of interact within our world, why are they that way? And beautiful analogies relating to nature and physics. And so that that's a book that I definitely recommend. The last one, I'm I'm stuck because I'm, I'm torn between the two. I would say probably Ministry of the Future or Terraformation. Uh-huh. And both of those books, I think, provide a really humanizing account of what possible not positive climate futures could look like. Um, I think there's more work to be done around like cautiously optimistic climate futures. The the solar punk ecosystem and aesthetic does a good job of, of, I think, giving us some things to look forward to if we get it right. Yeah. Awesome. And the second question is, what or who are three founders and or startups that you love and you want everybody else to know about? I mean, the first thing that I would say is that to see all of the talent the the climate tech space has attracted within the last couple of years yeah. is so hopeful and so inspiring to me that I think when people are wondering, should I get into climate? Sure seems like I don't know anything about it. Just do it. Yeah. Like there's so many good reading lists out there right now. So you can start to understand what this space looks like, yeah. who's there. Three specific founders that I think have been very helpful to me. Um, and it's cool to have like climate friends. But I have to say, um, Paul Gross from Remora, I think the work that they're doing there is really incredible. And Silvera, uh, Sam Gill and Alistair, they're working on building the Moody's for for carbon credits and have a very large depth of knowledge, not only on remote sensing, but also just on how do you quantify the quality of a carbon credit. And then last, last, but definitely not least, I'd say Diego from Pachama. We've all kind of matured and grown our businesses within this ecosystem together. And I couldn't be more grateful for all the help that I've gotten along the way. Yeah. And I want to echo that sentiment of just how many talented people are getting into the space right now. I mean, we had two happy hours over the last month that brought together 1,200 people. One of them was at UC Berkeley. And just the energy there was incredible. And it's just so exciting to see how many folks are either going to create a company or work for one in the space. And uh, yeah, it's it's the new hot industry. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's there's some cautiousness there too, because I think as folks that are in climate tech, it is yeah. our duty to ensure that there's like high quality companies <laughs> being started and that we don't fall short to or like there there isn't too much greenwashing because I think if there's one thing that will hurt the industry and allow for all of us not to move forward, it's a few bad actors really tarnishing the name of the entire space. Absolutely. Um, But it was really exciting to me to hear about your climate tech happy hours, because if you had asked me in 2018 that there would be if you told me there'd be like 1200 people gathering for a climate tech happy hour for people that wanted to work in climate, (laughs) I would be like, that's 90th percentile success. But that's what's happening. And that's amazing. I can't wait to see what happens in the future. And I think if anything, What's been going on in Ukraine and the rest of the world is a reminder of how important energy independence is and also to be a source of innovation within that space. Mm-hmm. And I think the U.S. has an opportunity to really step up as a leader in the, in renewables and also in just thinking creatively about ways in which we can heal and harness the energy that's created within our own shores. That's beautiful. And I think 
we just better end it there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We greatly appreciate it. Until next time. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. The resources that we mentioned and everything else we talked about, drink recipes, various people, companies, so on and so forth, will all be linked in the show notes on our Substack at climatetechcocktails.substack.com. If you want to write us, our email address is m at climatetechcocktails.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at CT underscore cocktails and on Instagram, hashtag climatetechcocktails. You can reach me personally by Carrier Pigeon or on my LinkedIn forward slash Matthew J. Myers. Until next time, keep the dream alive and do your part to make the world a better place for 100% of humanity. And thanks for tuning in.